Hello everyone, welcome to the 17th episode of the Antibodies podcast. Today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Claudia Jakubsik from Dartmouth University. Welcome to the podcast, Claudia. Uh thank you for having me here. And joining me today are our hosts, uh Eugenio, Natalie and myself, Jatin. Hello. Hello guys. Today's article is pretty interesting. It's opened up a new set of concepts for me to not only learn by myself but also test my students on because sometimes I TA in immunology classes. So it's cool to mess up with their heads and they hey you don't know everything. What <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh Claudia she's an associate professor and she's done a lot of work in immunology. Claudia, can you tell us something uh, about yourself as your journey as a scientist? Sure. Um my love of science started as a kid watching science shows and then um in college the field of immunology was the one that really caught my attention because of the fact that no one part works without the other. So in biology in my biology classes you would learn parts but they wouldn't continue on into the next exam and so forth. But immunology you really need to see the whole picture and how they interact with each other. So yeah, that's that's where that all started. And at UF. So Oh yeah, you were at University of Florida. Correct, as an as an undergrad. Yep. And what did you work on there? At University of Florida, I was with uh Dr. Julie Moppin on a proteasome subunit assembly. that's very different from immunology right but <laughs> well <laughs> not really right cuz the proteasome clubs um cle- helps cleave the peptides right that get loaded onto an mhc molecule nice oh yeah right mhm and and how did you get into um dartmouth as a professor oh oh that's those are job searches right so okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this um it's an opportunity that 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 was made available and so here i am yeah but i mean originally as a graduate student i was studying the lung and um my uh graduate stu- uh my graduate mentor told me oh if you really want to study lung immunology the place you really need to do it is at National Jewish Health. From that point, it took me 10 years to finally get there. So National Jewish Health was originally a dream job for me because it had it was both a pulmonary hospital and it had world-class immunologists there. And so um yeah. Okay. Uh today we are going to be discussing this article called uh, titled Immune Surveillance by Natural IgM. is required for early new antigen recognition and initiation of adaptive immunity this is coming right from dr uh well claudia's lab and a few years ago but before we start talking about the article or anything i got a very nice joke for you guys all right shoot <laughs> this is the work of sleepless nights so you better li- like it all right Uh why did the epithelial cell feel offended when natural antibodies bound to it? Why? Why? 
It's because the other cells thought that the epithelial cell was garbage. Oh, <laughs> poor epithelial cell. Okay, it, it, now, now that I say it out loud, it's not that funny. <laughs> but <laughs> since, since, since we just talked about this and spent two minutes of our listeners' time, better explain it. Natural antibodies, they are polyreactive antibodies. They come from B cells that do not go through germinal center reactions. They're not very specific. And these antibodies do a lot of functions, one of which is tag dead cells or trash debris so that they can be picked up by scavenging cells and get rid of them. Yeah. Hopefully somebody likes that joke. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> anyway, right? <laughs> okay. Thank you, Claudia. <laughs> Uh, right before we start with discussing the paper, we always go through a set of terminology which will be helpful in understanding the paper. Uh, Eugenio, you want to take this one? Sure, sure, sure. So um, first we need to know uh, one term that is called PAMP or PAMP that stands for Pathogen Associated Molecular Patterns. And basically these are molecular patterns common to pathogens but not occurring in mammals. So the next term will be PRRs or pathogen recognition receptors, which are receptors of the innate immune system that recognize molecular patterns or motifs present on pathogens but absent in the host. So basically these PRRs will recognize uh, the PAMPs. No? So that's really a, a basic concept in immunology. So the third term that we're gonna talk is neoantigen. And Neoantigens are antigens not normally present in the normal genome of a host. These antigens are modified peptides to which T cells are not self-tolerant. Eugenio, can I ask you something here? Yes, sure. Would we consider pathogenic molecules as neoantigens? Actually, it's for anybody. I don't know. Uh, I, I would say no, be, because uh, the PAMPs are not codified in our genome. And the neoantigen, it's a uh, an antigen that is it's also not co coded uh, by the genome. Yeah, but it, may, it might be mod at least in cancer, it might be modified by any you know uh, mutation and then become a neoantigen. Okay, so you're saying they're slightly modified versions of the antigen? Is that uh, it? Might probably. be. I don't know, Claudia. What would you say? <laughs> well, I mean, neo is mu, right? So new to the immune system is why they named it neoantigen. Okay. Probably pathogenic proteins can be called neoantigens. Now we're getting into that I, gray area. I don't, I've not heard of it called neoantigens. I think it's very yeah, right? selective for cancer in the, in terminology. I mean, I think there are lots of terms out there that could potentially be used for um, certain things, but you just don't hear it. And a question I have for you, since we're on that topic, and this is a debate we have in my lab, would a natural antibody, could you also call it an innate antibody? Because that's kind of how it's working here, right? I always thought of it mm -hmm. like like kind of a bridge. Yeah, I would call it. Like when you think of B1, B cells, they're kind of like innate-like. Right, mm -hmm. so you see that innate, but, but is it offensive to call it an innate antibody? Are you offending the B cell or <laughs> those who study it, right? The same way as if you call pathogenic antigens neoantigens for those who like use that term often in cancer immunology, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. 
that puts B cells in the exception of not absolutely being uh, adaptive. Exactly, exactly. So if you call it or innate B cells, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is that a common use of B1A or B1B cells as a term? Would you call them innate B cells? I've heard them called innate-like for sure. Innate-like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, same. Something like innate-like, but not explicitly calling it innate and hurting anybody's feelings. (laughs) (laughs) So with the neoantigens, I haven't heard people call pathogenic antigens neoantigens. Yeah, probably probably something with the same species, coming from the same species, just not seen by that individual. Yeah, exactly. So the first step will be IgM which stands for immunoglobulin M, which is an antibody class that serves as a receptor on IB cells. IgM is also the first class of antibody to be secreted during the course of an immune response. And it's secreted, secreted IgM exists primarily in pentameric form, okay? Uh, then we'll be talking about APS or antigen presenting cells. And in this work, we're gonna talk about uh, three main uh, antigen presenting cells. The Lysic-C monocytes, the BAT-F3 dendritic cells, and the... Well, well, B cells B cells can also be APCs. B cells. Never forget Sorry. the Bs, man. <laughs> so I just like want to mention a talk about the BAT-F3 dendritic cells, which has a unique characteristic of cross-presentation. And cross-presentation means that a protein, a protein processing and presentation pathway that occurs where exogenous antigens are presented on MHC1 class molecules for presenting to CD8 T cells. So it's an antigen that it's exogenous and it will be uh, normally presented in a MHC class two molecule, but it's not presented in an MHC class one. I have a question about Lysic-C positive monocytes. Is there, uh, Claudia, is there anything unique about these or they are just the regular monocytes that people talk about? When you mean unique, um, what are you referring to exactly? So normally we, we think of monocytes as circulating in the blood, then they can go to the tissues, could turn into macrophages if required or into dendritic cells. Is this Lysic-C just a generic monocyte marker or is it for a subset of monocytes? I see. Um, it's not a, genetic, a generic uh, monocyte marker. In fact, in humans, you don't express Lysic-C or at least you don't have the equivalent. So you don't use that as an antigen that it helps identify what's mm-hmm. termed classical monocytes. So Lysic-C okay. positive monocytes, we use it in mice because it helps us differentiate two subtypes one that's non-classical, which is intravascular, and it acts like a vacuum cleaner in your intravascular space, doesn't have transmigration molecules, so it doesn't enter into tissue. In fact, I tend to think of lysoxylomonocytes as your intravascular macrophage. Um, Now, people don't tend to like to say that because when they think of the word macrophage, they think of a very large macro cell, right? But even inside, you need you need something to to clean, clear the debris, and make sure things are functioning on the intra uh, on the luminal side of the vasculature. So those are those cells. Lysic C high 
are the ones that actually do have transmigration molecules, such as L-selectin is highly expressed in it. It's one of those defining things for those two subtypes. And it's used to enter into the tissue. And in fact, monocytes are really fascinating to me now that you know, we're thinking about this. I think of them as tissue vacuum cleaners <laughs> because um, <laughs> you know, they represent five to 10% of your PBMCs. If you were to ever create parabotic mice, which are mice that share circulation, uh, with each other um, after a certain period of time, a short period of time after surgery. They never reach 50-50 and it's because they exit the bone marrow and go straight into tissue um, and they have to interact with endothelial cells and they enter that tissue and macrophages in your tissue, which there are many, there isn't just one macrophage, like the lung just doesn't have alveolar macrophages. That's only in the luminal side of your alveoli, right? There's lots of other macrophages. Mm -hmm. So let's go with the last two terms, will be syngenic and allogenic. Syngenic denotes genetically identical individuals, such as twins or maybe uh, mice strand that we work in the lab. And the second will be allogenic, which denotes members of the same species that differ genetically. This basically will be, you know, like, uh, any, like the whole population, which is allogenic, mm -hmm. or maybe working with different strands in the mice. So with that, we can go with the, the, the paper. Yeah, thanks a lot, Eugenio. That was a nice uh, introduction. Um, we're gonna, let's, uh, I mean, that's a nice terminology. Let's talk about what's the whole premise of this paper. It has been long known that new antigens are not well tolerated by the immune system. And there is an immune response mounted against them readily. For example, if a female mouse is injected with proteins derived from the Y chromosome, the female mouse will reject those antigens. Nothing new here. This is a very well-known phenomenon. But what is less known is how this pro process takes place when there are no PAMs present. Let's do a quick primer on the recruitment uh, requirement of PAMs in the adaptive immune responses. Antigen-presenting cells like dendritic cells do not mature just by internalizing an antigen. A vital requirement for their maturation is the reception of a danger signal or a pathogen-associated signal like TLR ligands. These signals provide a context to the dendritic cells that whatever they have internalized is associated with a pathogen. The dendritic cells can then mature and upregulate co-stimulatory molecules like CD80 and CD86, which we put under the umbrella term of B7 molecules. And then the dendritic cell can start activating the right T cells. However, if PAMs are so important for activating dendritic cells, how are neoantigens present on cancer cells or even transplanted cells elicit, are eliciting immune responses? These cells look much closer to our own cells and they do not express any PAMP molecules. Ideally, they should go unnoticed by the immune system, but the fact is, they are noticed. This brings us to the big question, how is the immune system recognizing foreign molecules as harmful without a pathogenic context? What is it that initiates the immune response? I have to say that before reading this article, I never even gave this a thought that this might be relevant. I never thought PAMs, I, I knew PAMs are required, but I never thought, yeah, what happens when there are no PAMs? I, th I think I, think I want to point two things out. 
One is that the original model of cancer immunoediting that takes a tumor cell go, escapes intrinsic tumor suppression mechanisms. When you take it over, this extrinsic mechanism, that's where I think natural antibodies are playing a role, right? Mm-hmm. But this was missed because of the use of immune T mouse. So if you look at that model, what it shows is this hypoxic condition with cancer cells, you know, developing and and um, damps present. And it's those damps that then activate DCs to present neoantigens in immunogenic way. And so then in that model, you see T cells, CD4, CD8, NK cells, whatever, all those other cells, mm-hmm. except for B cells. <laughs> and even yeah. till today, you still see that. And so one of the things that I find interesting is that then they have the escape or the equilibrium and then the escape. And so there's lots of literature now showing that you have B cells in microtumor environments, but all of those are adaptive B cells, right? They're not the natural antibodies. And so the reason why I think you emphasizing this question, PAMPs, right? Why it called my attention is because when you transfer male cells or you transfer 129 into a B6, so it's MHC matched, but minor, uh, but MHC outside the locus mismatched, right? It's very different from cancer. You're not developing this hypoxic condition. You don't have damps. You don't have PAMPs. MHC class one is just fine. In fact, it's identical, like male into female as it's syngenate mice. So you don't have any of those parameters. So it's this very quiet space that everyone's missed. So that's what makes it unique. So even in cancer cells, there you have this hypoxic condition with damps. So So that's already way down the line when people talk about that. And transplant, it's not surprising because that's an MHC mismatch. So that has a whole other issue, a whole bunch of other issues, like mixed leukocyte reaction and so forth. Yeah. Very cool. So that is is why I assume uh, the rest of your paper, you're using this reductionist model where you can go through piece by piece, every part of that chain link and just see, uh, you know, what might be the important APCs, the important signals being passed along, right? Right, exactly. Because I'm really trying to this this in the very initial escape, right? Like that, that w- where you still don't have you know clustering occurring, where you can't even visibly see it if you were to create you know sections of of a, a future developing tumor. So yeah, cool. In this really early stage. All right. Well, then let's get into the figures here. So uh, again, we know. Bat F3 DCs can present antigens to CD8 T cells, which are going to go kill stuff in the uh, presence of PAMP stimulations. Um, but we don't know how the uh, Bat F3 positive DCs are getting activated without PAMPs. It's also known that the Bat F3 DCs play an important role in presenting neoantigens. But uh, again, we don't know what's going on if there's no PAMP or maybe it's a damp. But this is why we're going to use. Uh, a number of different mouse models to go through uh, what could possibly be the cascade resulting in the death of these cells. So to answer this question, uh, you use this model where we have the Y antigen expressing male cells. And if you put them into a female mouse, she's going to reject it. Uh, they're very sexist like that, I suppose. <laughs> um, it's it's so unfair that females reject male <laughs> cells, but males don't reject <laughs> female cells. Well, That's every so- <laughs> online dating website. 
<laughs> yeah, so these female sw- cells swipe and left on the male cells. Uh, well, and it's because the male cells have all the all the stuff being coded by the Y chromosome. Uh, everybody has the X chromosome, so it doesn't make a difference if you were to put the female cells in the male, but uh, because there's the Y antigens uh, coming off the male cells, then the female cells will recognize that and kill those. So, uh, and this, this is always happens. It's an observation. It's a very well established model. So the authors repeated this experiment under a couple of conditions. One, where the female had limited CD8 positive T cell repertoire, uh, when the female was BAT F3 knockout, where there were no BAT F3 DCs, uh, where there was CD4 knockout, so no helper T cells, uh, where there was no CCR2, and uh, that's a that's a receptor that'll allow the monocyte to uh, basically listen and Traffic. follow signals to bring them into the secondary tissues, the lymph nodes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also where you're missing your mature peripheral B cells, so that's the um, MU-MT, these IgMu heavy chain knockout mice, um, which Claudia, you, you mentioned was um, kind of a limitation of other papers was using these particular B cell model. Right. Yeah. I mean, it worked for the male cell, but it doesn't work for tumors. Okay, cool. Well, I'm sure we'll come back around to that. (laughs) So in all of these different cases, the female mice uh, mouse was unable to remove the neoantigen expressing cells. So it means that all five of these components are required for the recognition and elimination of neoantigen expressing cells. So you need your diverse CD8 T cell repertoire, you need the DCs, you need your helper T cells, and you need the CCR2 signaling. And most importantly, you need your B cells. So uh, with this, the authors hypothesized a chain reaction, uh, which is very nicely put in uh, figure 1A that shows that, you know, you got your B cell and then you've got your uh, Lysic-C monocyte talking to the CD4 T cell, going to the BAT-F3-DC and finally telling that CD8 uh, T cell to go kill and do its job, um, which will eventually lead to the clearance of the neoantigen. Furthermore, to exclude other cell types, um, they also used a couple of different knockouts, which would knock out um, NK cells, IgG effector functions, and TLR3 and 7 signaling. And none of these were required for the elimination of uh, neoantigen-bearing cells. So, since IgGs may not be so important for this process, which are the class-switched antibodies, they further hypothesized that the IgM antibodies natural antibodies that uh, you know don't get class switched and don't go through the germinal center reaction may be required for that initial recognition of neoantigens. The IgMs and neoantigens could therefore form an immune complex, which is picked up by the LN trafficking monocytes, which then further activate the CD4 T cells and uh, so yes. on and so forth. That is an elaborate hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How'd you come up with that one? Um... So just so that, just to point out though, the, the CD4 to CD8 one, uh, D, so the it, bad F3 DCs are actually called DC1. Yes. Okay. You know, that's like a moving target, oh, but- um, oh, Are they, wait, conventional DC1? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're conventional. And in fact, a paper in Nature in 2020 in August came out and showed that you have to have CD4 T cells licensed DC1 to then mount an immune response against tumors. So, yay. Um, <laughs> so how did I come up with that? Well, because I, had, I, I did a JM paper um, 
years before this where I showed that um, um, if it acquires a cell associated antigen, it can only cross present that antigen. So you'll see, and, and in this case, I was using um, a cell associated OVA. So using the actin OVA mice and when only the BATF3 was presenting it, because if because they have fossil, they have specific fossil ketoserum receptors, so they're the only ones that can acquire apoptotic cells, and presenting it in a draining lymph node in vivo, you only saw CD8 T cell proliferation, but no CD4. Now I know it talks with CD4, I just don't think it's proliferating the CD4. And it makes a lot of sense because the cross-presenting DC, when it acquires exogenous antigen, it releases it into the cytosolic compartment. And to be able to really present antigen on an MHC class two molecule, you have to hold it in the endosome and in a phagosome infused with the lysosome to have MHC class two presentation. That's why like when you IV inject cytochrome C, you only kill DC1 because when it acquires exogenous antigen, it releases it into the cytosolic compartment and kills itself. So anyway, so male cells, it's known that you need CD4 T cells to mount an immune response against the male cells. So I knew that DC1 couldn't be the only answer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, so then who's presenting to CD4 T cells? And I did this immunity paper where I showed that monocytes are not giving rise to macrophages all the time. In fact, they're surveying the environment and they're really good at picking up things outside of the niche, right? They're not stuck in a niche. And so, and they can also pick up cell associated engines, unlike DC2 can't do that. And so, um, and they can also then upregulate CCR7 to traffic to draining lymph node and present antigen. So, so the interesting thing is um, monocytes normally probably don't present in an immunogenic way, but maybe in the context of an antibody with complement, they will. And so that's why we hypothesized that it was monocytes capturing this, this, these factors. In addition, something I didn't add in this paper was that I had recently discovered these three interstitial macrophages in 2017 that were present in, in every single organ. So it's not your alveolar macrophage or your Kufer cell, but every organ has interstitial macrophages and they're transcriptionally very similar. And the number one gene they express is C1Q which is the first component of the complement system to bind to IgM, right? And you're gonna, and you, you have it here in this question to ask a, a little later, but like, what, how are they recognizing that antibody, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's a question. And what, are, what, how do we identify these cells? We identify them with CD11C, CD11B. So my question to you is, what are those? What are those? For you C11B. guys. C11B. Oh, wait, those are complement receptors, three and four, part of the complement receptors. Right. <laughs> right. And in yeah. fact, early on when I was when I was identifying which monocytes were trafficking into tissue, because at the time we didn't know whether it was highs or lows or all of those. You know how I used to identify them with the C1Q receptor. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it turns out interstitial macrophages and monocytes selectively express the C1Q receptor. So it all kind of added up. And the only thing endogenously that I can think of that will license an antigen presenting cell to present something in an immunogenic way is an antibody. If there's no DAMPs or PAMPs, it, it's an antibody. Well then, of course, this is why in your next couple of figures, you're going to look at the contribution of B cells uh, to rejecting the, the transfer of male cells into the wild type. Those are Natalie's favorite cells. The B cells, yes. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> That's what I work on. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know when when I started, I used to talk about bee cells every once in a while, but not really because I was a myeloid person. They're like, yeah, bees were boring. Just ignore no. them. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, bee is the best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that that makes my heart so warm. <laughs> I think they're the best. Oh, yeah. So uh, we know B cells, uh, they, they can have a couple of jobs. They can either be APCs. That was that third APC that everybody forgot because everybody forgets B cells. Or they can make antibodies, which is what everybody normally thinks when they think B cells. So uh we already knew that like the, the IgMs are probably very important and not so much the IgGs, the class switched ones. So to test if they're required for rejection, uh, you're going to use two models. It's like the, the hypo uh, IgM mouse and the hyper IgM mouse. So there's first, uh, the authors first transferred male cells into these Ig hell MD4 female mice. Uh, these are Hell's B cells again. They're specific to the hen egg lysozyme, which is Hell. Uh, pretty much more than 90% of their IgM are specific for this one uh, antigen, and they pretty much only have Hell's B cells. Uh, in this experimental setup, uh, the APC capacities of the B cells are maintained, but you kind of limit the antibody specific, uh, specificity to the one antigen. So they observed that the female recipients didn't reject the male cells, meaning that the antibodies and specifically the IgM probably play a really important role in rejecting the cells. Uh, and to further demonstrate, they used the AID knockout mouse. So AID is activation-induced cytosine deaminase. Uh, it, it is upregulated upon the activation of the B cell, and it's really important for class switcher combination and somatic hypermutation. But what this means in the mouse is that basically they can't make class switched uh, antibodies and they're only going to have the low affinity serum IgM. So it's like they have so much IgM, but they can make it to whatever they want, unlike the, the Hell's B cell mice. So here, all the male cells were rejected after the adoptive transfer. So together, these two different models demonstrate that a di diverse IgM repertoire is required for the rejection of the neoantigen expressing cell. Um, finally, there was this other model that they could use ova-expressing male cells into the syngenaic, but non-ova-expressing female mice. So basically now there's two types of neoantigens for the female recipient. They're not only trying to look for the Y antigens that come from just male cells, but they're also looking for ova. Now, if you just put ova into a mouse, it's not necessarily immunogenic. You need like a second signal. Um, and it's usually not rejected because there's no PAM. But we know that the Y antigen is going to cause, you know, rejection. So uh, they want to see if you put this sort of uh, signal with the Y and the OVA, then that should be rejected as well. And that's exactly what happened. The female injected with the male cells expressing OVA rejected uh, the Y chromosome antigens and the OVA. Uh, next, they want to know how much of that rejection is actually mediated by the serum antibodies. So I thought this was a really cool experiment. You just pre-incubate male cells with either male serum or female serum and the antibodies are hanging out, they've been secreted in the serum. So then you take those serum incubated cells and put them back in a male mouse. So if you have male cells incubated in serum with male mice and you put them in a male mouse, it doesn't get rejected, which makes sense, it's all male. But if you put the male cells in female serum and you put them into a male mouse, they will get cleared by the male mouse, even though like this doesn't usually happen. 
So that suggests that something in the serum of the female mice causes the male mouse to reject male cells. Um, serum, of course, has tons and tons of proteins. So next question is, well, is it specifically the antibodies that hang out in the serum? And so to test this question, they used a RAG knockout model and uh, RAG is really important for the development of Bs and T cells. And so when the male mice were incubated with the serum from a RAG knockout female mouse, there's no rejection. So therefore it has to be something coming from the T cells or the B cells that's likely uh, mediating this rejection effect. So it could very well be immunoglobulins and therefore you guys performed a Western blot to look for antibodies that were bound to the male cells when they were incubated with a wild type female serum and found that there were tons of IgM that were tagging these uh, male B cells. So together, these experiments show that antibodies present in the wild type female serum uh, from the cellular immune complex uh, form a cellular immune complex with male cells. And this results in neoantigen uh, immunogenicity. I have some questions about this. this is a pretty cool experiment, but at the same time, if these IgMs present in the serum are letting the male mouse reject male cells, have have you just identify a new way of how autoimmune responses start is this could well, this be well so let me just clarify something here so you we didn't inject female serum into the male mouse because i thought that would be an explosion so so <laughs> the way the way we did this is that the antibody is tagging the cell right and so the immune system captures that whole cell. So I don't think it knows what, what's male and what's not male. What it's gonna do is present whatever's foreign. And so when you acquire that cell in an immunogenic way, right, OVA is just collateral damage. Like it's just another foreign antigen along with the male stuff. But in a male mice, none of the male antigens are foreign. The only thing that's foreign is OVA. And so what we did was, so OVA will be presented in an immunogenic way if antibodies are coding that cell because that cell was acquired in an immunogenic way, right? Mm -hmm. And so and so then we transferred target cells. Our target cells were female, OVA-expressing or not OVA-expressing. And only the OVA-expressing ones were killed because the, the, immune, the immune response is against the OVA antigen, not the male antigens. Okay, okay. Right. And so... Um, and, and the, the reason why I came up with this experiment was because we also had, you know, the paper became too much, right? So we also did studies where, we, you know, I thought a reviewer was going to ask for it or something, where we just got antibodies against the ova antigen. And so if you transfer in a female mouse, right, ova expressing female cells, there's no immune response against the ova when you transfer tar female target cells later, ova expressing target cells. But if you, prior to, to transferring, if you, if you, tra if you, if you if you purchase either your IgG or IgM antibodies against OVA and you just you know spike in a little bit of those antibodies in the cells prior to transferring, now you mount an immune response against the OVA antigen. So clearly antibodies can promote immunity against cells that are coated with antibodies, right? And, and if there's foreign antigen there. Okay, just to be clear, you said that only when these antibodies bound to ova and they were put back into the male mice, these male mice rejected the ova-expressing cells and not just any Y-chromosome-expressing cells. No, 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 no. The, 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 
the antibodies are not against OVA. They're against the, the H, whatever HY okay. antigens are being expressed. But the cell is coated in antibodies. So mm -hmm. the cell gets picked up in an immunogenic way. And any antigens that are foreign get presented in an immunogenic way. And so in the case of in the case of OVA expressing male cells, the only thing foreign in that cell is OVA. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Okay. And so the target cells we transferred were female overexpressing cells with female or wild type female cells. So there's no male targets, okay. male antigen targets. And in fact, this isn't a male thing. This is just neoantigens because we also illustrated this with 129 female cells into a black six female mouse where again, the haplo MHC haplotypes are matched, but there's a lot of mismatch outside of the MHC locus. Okay, so uh, just to, if I understand it right, that means there must be some CD4 T cells that were specifically OVA that existed before in the organism, right? Oh, yeah. In order to, yeah. okay. Yeah. All right. For sure. Yeah, and you can find those with tetramers. All right, yeah. Right, MHC you can find in tetramers. Yeah, you can find endogenous OVA responses using um, OVA-specific tetramers for okay. immunodominant peptides. Yep. So with that, we move to the next figure where the big question that the authors are asking is, are monocytes involved in rejection? The authors got a lead in their initial experiments that CCR2 signaling was required for eliminating neoantigens. Lymph node trafficking monocytes are an important cell type that relies on CCR2 for trafficking. The authors hypothesize that monocytes may be the first APCs that present the antigens to the CD4 positive T cells. This goes well with what Claudia was talking about that BATF3 positive DCs are really good at cross-presenting and activate CD8s, but not so much at CD4. So maybe it's the monocytes that are activating the CD4s. The authors performed an elaborate experiment here that we will simplify for everybody's sanity. <laughs> <laughs> They made a bone marrow chimera where only Li6C positive monocytes, if if I'm right, these are the the ones that can go inside the tissues, right? Classical. Yeah. So Li6C positive monocytes lagged MHC2 expression, while all other APCs were capable of MHC2 expression. They found that when the female mice contained 100% MHC class 2 deficient monocytes, they were unable to clear the Y antigen bearing male cells. These monocytes are, that means they are likely the unique APC population that activate the CD4 positive T cells in this case of neoantigen rejection. Yeah. So far, we have seen the role of B cells, serum IgM, and the monocytes in this whole process of elimination. Next, the authors wanted to know how are the BATF3 positive DCs involved in this process? They hypothesized that once the CD4 positive T cells are activated by the circulating monocytes or the Li6C positive monocytes, maybe these uh, CD4 cells are uh, activating the BATF3 positive DCs in turn. One signaling pathway for the activation of APC, APCs via helper T cells is the CD40 and 40 ligand pathway where, where the CD40 ligand on T cells interacts with the CD40 <laughs> on APCs like dendritic cells. To be honest, I thought this was only limited to the B cell help inside germinal centers. It was slightly new to me that 
antigen presenting cells also need this <laughs> but yeah back back to the topic the authors found that when the females were lacking cd4 ligand in their t cells or cd40 on their bat f3 positive dendritic cells they were unable to eliminate the neo antigen expressing cells that means this cd40 40l interaction is indeed required for elimination and it is likely that the helper t cells are activating the bat f3 positive dendritic cells that was some nice work with the cd40 was this your first shot in in the as a hypothesis or did you have other plans too they to tease apart the role of bat f3 uh, dendritic cells was it the first thing you tried about cd40 40l or was there other things in your mind how how to see if they might be useful no, here no so there's so there's this old um paper in nature that showed that um apcs so the 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 induction of a cytotoxic t cell needs cd4 help but it has to go through a dc it doesn't go mm-hmm. through it it's not direct it's not cd4 yeah. to cd8 right and so i had seen that story but what what makes this one kind of cool is that it's only dc1 that has to be expressing the cd40 so in in this in this model all the other apcs are expressing cd40 so monocytes macrophages dc2 b cells but it's only in the absence of dc1 that you don't get you don't mount a cytotoxic t cell response against the neo antigen expressing cell and again this was validated in the recent nature paper that came out um that oh. just focused on that one mechanism um so 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 i thought that you know that was cool and i think part of where this all comes from the whole of like what's the pamp was that also prior to this initial encounter which by the way was just serendipitous right we had run out of female cells and my technician used male cells and i'm like what's going on <laughs> um <laughs> but um it was cuz in a, a nature communications paper we did earlier we what what we noticed was that for dc1 and dc2 there was a difference in tlr ligand expressions 3 and 7 and so these are viral um uh a pamp uh recognition receptors right single stranded rna and double stranded rna but they were they're, they're completely different like the, one expresses one doesn't the other one expresses the other one doesn't they're endosomal tlrs so we know that if you put um an uh, uh an antigen with either single stranded rna or an antigen with double stranded rna you develop a cytotoxic t cell response like that is known but the question i had asked in that paper was is it is is it just one dc doing it or can both dcs do it when only one pamp is there so basically if the antigen is is being presented by one dc but the pamp is activating the other that's not expressing the antigen do you still develop a cytotoxic t cell response and the answer was no the you all you get is t cell proliferation but no effect or function so the antigen bearing dc had to be directly licensed to actually differentiate a cytotoxic t cell so that's what because of that data and that finding i was like what is licensing dc1 <laughs> to present the the male antigens or the 129 antigens in an immunogenic way if one it's not really proliferating cd4 t cells which you know are important and two there are no pamps or dams present so what's licensing it and and that's where i know that cd4 has to activate apcs to then develop a cytotoxic t cell response that's a cool link yeah <laughs> i'm 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 glad 
you you made this word. This is really nice. Anyway, next the authors tested their hypothesis on another model where Y antigen is not the neo antigen. Without going in too much details, for again the sake of our sanity, <laughs> the authors <laughs> observed that the elimination of the neo antigen was again inhibited when either BATF3 was knocked out or when the B cell repertoire was mainly limited to the HEL or hen egg lysozyme antigen. This experiment further confirmed that a diverse B cell repertoire and the presence of BATF3 positive DCs are required for neoantigen elimination. Since there is so much happening, let's review the information we have so far. B cells produce IgMs and they are likely tagging the neoantigens. <laughs> Next, possibly the lymph node tracking Lys6C positive monocytes are capturing the neoantigen IgM complexes through an, a mechanism that we have not discussed yet. They might be using an FC receptor or a complement receptor. When these they capture the neoantigen IgM complexes, they present them to CD4 positive T cells via MHC2. These activated CD4 positive T cells are then signaling to the BATF3 positive DCs via CD40 and 40L interaction. Eventually, DC, the BATF3 positive DCs, which are now licensed, they will activate a CTL response, who, which eventually eliminate the target cells. In this case, these target cells are the ones expressing the neon antigen. Wow, that's that's five different actors, <laughs> <laughs> different cell types, and we are finding each of their inter uh, role in one paper. That's usually few papers <laughs> <laughs> do you know how i normally show this in a talk i i say that the um igm is the key and i show all the other cell types as and i have it kind of designed like a car so i'm like mm -hmm. this is the ferrari that's sitting in front of your house and it looks beautiful and it's great but it doesn't work unless you have the key to that engine and so for me the igm is the key that starts that entire car that beautiful car and that's why i like the atl mice because we ended up showing that all the cells are there and in fact since then we've we've been able to sh show that you can have an endogenous cytotoxic t-cell response in the atl mice <laughs> if you bypass the need of the need of antibodies right and so like if you use a tlr ligand like an antigen with a poly ic you develop a beautiful cytotoxic t-cell response against that antigen in the atl mice because everything's there but if you require antibodies, it doesn't uh. happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So with this a nice model here, the authors ask an important question. How important is a polyclonal IgM repertoire? Because we have known that B cell re uh, repertoire is required generally, but how much is the polyclonal IgM repertoire required? We saw that the IgHel limited B cell repertoire was unable to clear neoantigen expressing cells. But how does it perform when it comes to tumor clearance, which is where neoantigen detection makes the most practical sense. So now we are moving to an in vivo model that is relevant and you can actually show, yeah, this is, this stuff is practically and everybody should care about it. <laughs> the authors <laughs> used two tumor models. There's a urethane induced lung adenocarcinoma model and a melanoma model where melanoma cells are injected into healthy mice and they just get melanoma. 
the authors compared the tumor burden in the following different mice models. First, a wild type mouse, then a bat F3 knockout mouse, CCR2 knockout mouse, and the IG hell mice, which only have the repertoire of, against IG uh, hells. It is surprising that while all three knockout animals had higher tumor burden than the wild type, the IG hell mice had the highest tumor burden, showing that a polyclonal antibody response may be the most important factor when it comes to the detection of neoantigens. I'll also rehash that we have already established that affinity maturation that is in the AICD knockout model, it's not needed for the antibodies. Therefore, they are likely natural IgMs that originate earlier during the immune response or even probably without an immune response, they are naturally there. One reason that the lack of a polyclonal IgM repertoire led to the highest tumor burden may be because IgM provide two lines of defense. First, IgM tag neo-antigen-bearing cells, which are then cleared by the immune, innate immune system like phagocytes or complements. And number two, the IgM tag neo-antigen-bearing cells, which are then detected by the adaptive immune system in this long and detailed process that we just discussed in the paper. So with this, I think we can get to the discussion. And so I hope everyone in the audience uh, would reach the same conclusion as we, we did, that IgMs have a, a huge role in the elimination of neoantigen expressing tumor cells. And we have seen that, as Claudia mentioned, it's the key for our Ferrari in the uh, tumor clearance. So Claudia, um, uh, one of the questions that arises during the reading of this paper, so which B cells might be making these natural IgMs? That's a fascinating question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so I've read all the subset papers I can find. I've talked to Nicole and Francis and B cell experts to ask. Um, I've adoptively transferred, I've sorted all types of B cells and adoptively transferred. And I find that you still get everybody and everything that you would normally see, maybe at just slightly different ratios. So I don't, I don't know. I guess is the question. I mean, I guess it could be the ones in the peritoneum. It could be the marginal zone B cells. It can be the B1 B cells, the CD5 positives or negatives. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, because we were thinking about B1 cells. So, but yes, yeah, you mentioned you, you have- There's you have no, no way idea. to isolate them, right? Get a pure population of B1s. But you, you could sort them out, right? But there's no conditional knockout. Oh, wait, what marker would you use for B1s? Oh my gosh, I haven't done my B1 project in a while. <laughs> 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 there's markers, right? Like CD5 and yes. CD19, and there's different levels of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. probably. I, yeah, I, I don't work with B cells by a long shot, so <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Antibodies? <laughs> They're all they're all T cell guys. <laughs> yeah, we're all T cell guys. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, the funny thing is, I've had people ask me, you know, well, what is it recognizing, right? Like, what what's the antigen? 
And, and is it something that you can just figure out? And the, the, the answer is no, I can't just figure out because, um, because it also works when you take a 129 female and transfer it into a black six mouse. It's not a, it's not a male antigen thing. It's, it's a neoantigen thing. And I have no idea what, ana, you know, what antibody is recognizing it, but it's definitely recognizing it. I mean, now we've run what many Western blots and IHCs to truly show that it's an IgM antibody that's recognizing some, I'm not sure if it's even a mutation or an altered glycosylation of an antigen or something, you know, but I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a minor antigen in the MHC groove. You know, and I'm not even sure if it's a mutation on on a protein more than glycosylation, or if it is a mutation, then it's a mutation that causes a massive kink. Mm. Okay. Claudia, and have you thought about uh, the microbiota as a driving of the natural IgM? As driving natural IgM, like repertoire. Um, yeah. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could Sorry, be an no. experiment in antibiotic-treated sure mice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a role. <laughs> yeah, yes. no, I mean, sure. I'm sure, I, I mean, it seems like microbiota has a role in everything, right? But, um, yes. yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I have a question. Yep. Uh, yeah. So in cases of like lymphoma or something where they basically just irradiate your whole, you know, bone marrow population and, and replace it with something new. Could that um, maybe increase your propensity to have like a, a relapse of a cancer? Because your original IgMs would be cleared, right? And you'd be getting new ones. Yeah. So when we've done bone marrow studies, and in fact, uh, that last figure has both bone marrow and pure mice, mm -hmm. um, bone marrow chimeras. Um, we find that the the both the tumor models and the rejection models come out relatively the same as long as you allow this the six to eight weeks reconstitution of like wild type bone marrow in the mice right okay um or or even that the hel bone marrow allows for the clearance of the original antibodies in the naive recipients mm -hmm. right of wild type recipients so so yeah so so at least in that in that that frame, um, things are different. I mean, there's a lot of wild things though that I'm thinking of. Like, for instance, you don't get this male cell rejection, you don't get this 129 cell rejection in the HL mice. Now, the question I have, just on a separate note, is, is that ignorance or tolerance? Did I establish tolerance? <laughs> right? Like, think about it, right? Like, mm -hmm. And, and so then the same thing, these are observations seen in neonates. Like neonates have this small window where tolerance can be established, right? It's also known that the, that the natural antibody repertoire is quite limited in that early, very early, early stage. So I don't know if there's a correlation here, but that's something to follow up on. Yeah. Yes. So finally, um, how, uh, Claudia, how can this study help us to improve neoantigen recognition and tumor clearance? Oh, how can it help? Like, just, it's just, I guess, helping the overall understanding of biology and our homeostatic maintenance, I think. Um, I mean, like all cars, right? Different parts start falling apart when, when, uh, with age. Yeah. 
And so it's knowing that, you know, some things can be compensated. I don't believe really in redundancy that much. Um, only, originally I did because I came from a world of chemokines and the world redundant was very popular. Like the chemokines are redundant and these receptors are all there that combine to multiple types. I, I, don't, I don't think of that anymore. I think of compensation, right? So like a car, you can scratch the car like crazy and it still runs fine. You can even probably take the passenger seat out and if there weren't laws against it, you could probably let them sit on the floor and you can still keep running, right? But there's certain parts that are not that, that just, it won't work at all. And so, so, I mean, the knowledge would be as we age, we, we lose our antibody and T cell repertoire, mm -hmm. right? And um, this can be part of that process where now that you don't have these recognitions, I mean, other mechanisms will come and compensate eventually, hopefully, <laughs> but, but it's just, one of those things. Yeah, yeah I had a, a question related to that. It's just that in, in this, what would be the, oh, sorry, uh, in this system where we have five players that are non-redundant, I don't really see how that can possibly evolve. I mean, obviously it did, but uh, do you have any speculation to how this could have come about or if there's any kind of inter intermediate where it could still work? Oh, I see. So in this case of these players, um, it's in a setting where there's no damps, pamps. Oh, yes. Right, MHD class one is just fine, mm -hmm. right? I think that in, in a real tumor setting, you're eventually gonna get to the dams, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and you're eventually gonna have, mm -hmm. yeah, weird things with the MHC class one, maybe, you know, a good good possibility. And so, so there, other players can come in and kick in, right? Um, that's why for me, it's this really silent window where the other players are not as relevant. Cool. Yeah, because to, to say that NK cells don't matter, that would be crazy. <laughs> yeah. Of course they do, yeah, right? Absolutely. But they don't matter in that little window, right? And so, yeah. Neat. Okay, so finally, uh, Claudia, what would be the next step uh, during this uh, research? What What is your plans for this project? To really take it home, you know, I really want to show how important it is up front. So one of the things that we're doing is we're crossing it, you know, these ideas unfortunately evolve and take time. And then you start getting hit with, oh, maybe I should have done this earlier on. But one of them is to cross them with the transgenic um, um, cancer models that are right now at Jackson. So all you need is one allele. And um, and so and then you cross it with an HEL mom. And so what's really nice about that is it'll either get the HEL transgene or not. And so you have litter mate controls within it. So we have mammary tumors, we have prostate cancer, we have intestinal cancer. Like all of these are um, are models that are out there and available. And what's really nice is they're they're clearly defined. And so what we're expecting, what we hypothesize is that. The, the pups that um, are antibody repertoire deficient will develop bigger and more tumors than the ones that are not. So we have a baseline and a defined baseline. So that's one model that we're doing right now. The other one was to show how the field missed this based on the use of the MUMT mice. So empirically, we see the same thing everyone else sees. We see less tumors in the MUMT mice and so forth. And it's not, it's not because um, 
their observations were wrong, but just because they didn't understand this crazy compensatory mechanism that exists in the immune team mice with PDCs, type 1 interferons, and NK cells. It's just so crazily abundant. The third thing was we wanted to show that it's not just the HEL mice, that we created um, another B cell deficient mouse using the CD19 Cree Rose of Flox DTA. And here now we see tons of tumors again, right? <laughs> and so then, and then the, the other thing is to show that in the HEL mice, if you give back IgM, so either with using the ID knockout serum or wild type serum, now you really decrease the tumor load. So showing the need. And then of course, there's also whole exome sequencing and challenging, right? So, so here now we're also showing with whole exome sequencing that um, the original mutations that were present in the onset of the escape of intrinsic tumor suppressor mechanism, suppression mechanisms are still there much later on, whereas in a wild-type mouse, there's Im immune pressure to change those mutations so that they can escape the immune system. And so we're working on those models too, but really showing the importance of natural IgM up front. I think it's really, really important. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Very excited to see what you, what you come up with next. <laughs> yeah. I'm the kind of person Thanks. who used to think IGMs are lame, but no more. No You're more. boring? <laughs> boring IGMs. <laughs> no, they're really, really cool. I mean, it's just, it makes so much sense, right? Like it has, it has a low, you know, like T cells, right? Mm -hmm. You have, you have low, re low recognition of self because you need to have that MHC recognition, but not too high and you can't ignore it, right? So, and natural antibodies have that too, but it's specific for every individual as T cells are. Like that makes a ton of sense. And so any mutation kink in your cell system, your antibodies will come and help clear that out, right? Absolutely, yeah. Keep you healthy, yeah. <laughs> It seems pretty, I mean, I think it's, it's, it seems um, logical for me. I don't know. Well, like you said, no, what yeah, got yeah. you into Makes immunology sense. is that, you know, if you miss even one player, the, none of it works. So. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know. Or, or, or things have to happen so that it can work, yeah. right? Crazy compensation. Yeah. Well, cool. If we don't have anything else, we can move along to the summary. Uh, yes. Let's summarize the whole article the last six hours we have been discussing <laughs> as, as you always like to say if you've been if you've been asleep these past six hours and you had to learn you know what we've been talking about uh okay so a neoantigen is introduced into the host that can be from you know a tumorous cell that is arising and your natural igms will bind that neoantigen and then they're going to be shown to these lymph node uh, the ln trafficking uh like Li6C positive monocytes, they're going to capture that immune complex and present it to CD4 positive T cells via MHC class 2. Then those activated CD4 positive T cells will in turn interact with BAT F3 positive DCs uh, via their CD40, CD40 ligand interaction. And these BAT F3 positive DCs uh, will activate the uh, cytotoxic uh, lymphocyte response, which will then eliminate your neoantigen expressing cells. So altogether, that's how all those different cells play a role to make sure you don't get cancer. Yeah, Ooh. without PAMs, especially without PAMs. Without PAMs. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I asked this question. I asked this question to one of the undergrads in my lab. Uh, I I I asked her how is the. So I I, I brought this whole situation in that you got a. If she's female, so I said, well, I, I, I inject a male chromosome uh, 
antigen in you, how are you going to recognize that? And she started giving me answers. I like, nope, nope, you need a pamp, you need a pamp. And then, and then I just said, you re- you think about it for a week, and I'll give you an answer. And I'll probably forward her this podcast so that she can understand. It's so mean. <laughs> yeah, it's mean. It's very mean. I do that. That's why my undergrads don't like me a lot. <laughs> no. no, it's challenging and thought provoking. Yeah. Also, Claudia, I just want to say it, it's very nice talking to people who are so enthusiastic about their work. It not everybody is that enthusiastic, so it's very, it's very, it's fun talking about things that everybody oh. likes to work talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great! Thanks. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is yeah. there anything else we want to discuss, or should we wrap it up here? That's all I got. All right. So, this has been a, a nice about seventy minutes of discussion, and. It's perfect time to wrap up our discussion. Uh, thank you all who were listening to us. We have a Facebook page where we post usually memes, but sometimes some useful information. We've got journal clubs that are bi-weekly. We've got bi-weekly podcasts as well. So do check them out. And thanks a lot, Claudia, for joining us today. This was a wonderful discussion. Yeah, thank you so much, Eugenio, Natalie, Shatim. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. And with that, me. let's... Wrap it up. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.